Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, March 9th, we're studying Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. Jesus goes back to the temple in order to teach and to answer the challenge of the religious leaders who are looking for a way to arrest Jesus and put him to death. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor Mike Newman. Pastor Newman serves as the president of the Texas District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. President Newman, welcome to Sharp Iron. Pastor Apple, it's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me to be on your program. Before we get started into the study, President Newman, let's talk a little about things in the Texas District. The state of Texas has been in the national news recently due to that really big winter storm that hit and the after effects. Tell us a little bit about that and, and the response of the Texas District to some of those needs that are evident among our own people and our neighbors here in Texas. People up north may have a, a little difficulty in understanding how uh, challenging it is after we get six inches of snow and we get you know nine degree weather, 13 degree weather. But Texas is not built for this, especially central and south Texas. So we've really experienced many, many difficulties in schools, in churches, in homes, particularly with broken pipes and flooding. And, you know, in another way, too, just because the roads are untravelable during an event like that, it backs up the deliveries of food. Uh, We had some difficulties with the water system and infrastructure. So there's some pretty severe needs out there. And people are stepping up in great ways. We have local ministries who are distributing food and water. We have some deliveries coming from McNorth. We praise God for the partnerships we have with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, who are providing matching grant dollars. So here in the Texas district, we're able to help these churches, schools and church workers with repairs and offset some of the deductible expenses and expenses that were unanticipated. Orphan Grain Train has been wonderful in sending uh, food and water items and even plumbing supplies, because as you might imagine, Lowe's and Home Depot and all the suppliers were immediately depleted. Uh, We have great uh, partnership with Water Mission as well, and they're reaching out to specific community to Austin to help families in need restore water. So uh, there are a few communities that are going to be out of drinkable water for a while. So uh, that's going to go on. The repairs are going to stretch into the months and months. So if anyone does want to contribute, they can just go to txlcms.org. It's a Texas District website. There's a donation link. 100% of those funds go to help our churches and schools and church workers in need. So, uh, and we appreciate everybody's prayers because this, you know, during COVID heightens the anxiety level. And it's also a great opportunity for all of us to share the love of Jesus Christ and his good news and show him what the church really is. Yeah, it's a fantastic opportunity. Glad to see the Texas district stepping up to do those things, to show the love of Jesus to our churches and to our neighbors around us who need that love of Jesus. Now, we've got before us a text in Mark chapter 11 that you know, we're talking about the love of Jesus and maybe we were like, how does, how is the text like this going to play in? <laughs> well, well, I think we'll get there. We can, we can connect some dots as, as we think about this text from Mark 11, help us set the context. We're in Holy week. We've come a long way in Mark's gospel. We still got a ways to go. Uh, what do we need about context going into the verses we've got for today? 
Yeah, it's so important to really understand this little tiny section and understand the flow of what's going on here. As you mentioned, uh, Jesus entered Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, the shouts of Hosanna. I think, you know, listeners need to understand that all of that triggers messianic expectation, an understanding of prophecy from the Old Testament, and people are at a heightened level, which means there's a heightened threat or suspicion by the church leaders to what is happening here. And there there were a number of false messiahs. There were revolts. Uh, so they were burned a little bit, too. There was some reason for suspicion. But they had a stronghold on the church of the day, and this did not come to them as good news. And to top it off, then, Jesus entered the temple. You talked about this. He uh, cleared the temple of the merchandisers and money changers, quoted Jeremiah 7, which was an indictment against the false religion of the people. So this was striking closer and closer at the heart of the elders and the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Uh, we see the, the flow going on here. So what's happening here is there's a crescendo of indictment against the current church leaders. And when Jesus cursed the fig tree and then the disciples discovered it withered, another commentary on the hollow and self-centered arrogant legalism of the church leaders. I, a little, you know, we see glimmers of hope, though. So just before our, the authority of Jesus is questioned here in the section we're looking at in Mark 11, right around verse 22, Jesus teaches. Now, you'd expect after all these things, he would really lay into the Pharisees and all the leaders of the church. But instead, he teaches on faith and on prayer and on forgiveness. And this is really very, very significant. As Jesus heads toward his crucifixion, what he's doing is constantly setting hearts right for the rest of the journey. And remember, we're on this journey. The word is living and active. So we're on this journey with the gospel writer and the early readers. We're reading it today. And Jesus sets our hearts right, too, uh, that this isn't just because sometimes as we read in the scriptures about the the church leaders who were seem to be such failures, we might say, look at them, I would never do that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Jesus says our hearts need to be set right as well. And uh, God is faithful. We can trust in him. His demeanor is grace. We err on the side of grace. He, he lays in front of us again the gift of forgiveness and calls us to forgive those who have sinned against us. So he sets that stage and I think, balances us in terms of law and gospel before he has this encounter with the church leaders. Right. Those those words of Jesus at the end of the previous text, I think, are, are pretty important. You know, we, we talked about in the previous conversation about Jesus cleansing the temple, that there's more going on there than just the, the counting of money in church. You know, I mean, I, at least I know when I was growing up in the church, that was one of the takeaways that I always got from that. It's like, well, there's a reason we count money in the narthex or in the church office instead of in the sanctuary. And, and fair enough. But there's more there. And we talked a little bit about this yesterday that, you know, the the church at that time had lost its focus on what was what the temple was for, that the sacrifices, the prayers, all of that was to preach Christ crucified. And so Jesus shows up. That's not happening. They've lost that focus. How easy it is for us to lose that focus in the church still today. That's something we, we all, always want to be aware of. And these, you know, these words that he speaks right before we get this confrontation, I think are very important that, that Jesus invites his disciples 
Bowles, not only that he's going, they're going to see the, you know, the passing away of, of what is old, that the, the temple's not going to be the place anymore. But in fact, where is our Lord going to be present? Among his people in his church, those who have who have faith in him, who continue to offer that faithful prayer, who share the forgiveness that he's given to them. And so, I mean, that that note of hope, I think, is important and and it helps us to see in these confrontations that are going to start with this text that Jesus isn't just giving these religious leaders a hard time, but he's actually reaching out to them. He's calling them to repentance and faith in him. Even if he knows it's going to be rejected, he still wants them to hear and believe as well. That's such an important point, Pastor Apple, because sometimes we can characterize the church leaders versus Jesus and and Jesus. And he spoke tough words to them. He did. But you're right. He was always trying to bring them back, always trying to win them. He wept over Jerusalem. He cared deeply about uh, God's chosen people. And he wanted these, these pastors, these, these shepherds of the flock, uh, to trust in and have faith in God's unfolding plan of salvation. And so we'll see that in, in this section today that he's, he's given them the word, right? The word to transform their hearts. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's take a look at the text. We're in Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That's the text for today. Mark 11 verses 27 through 33. So President Newman, let's just get started with context. What We're on Tuesday of Holy Week now. And this is really, at least in in Mark's gospel, the first move of these religious leaders against Jesus during Holy Week. He's, uh, we talked a little bit about this yesterday from a human perspective. Jesus really has the upper hand on them at this point. He's, he's got the people in a frenzy from Palm Sunday. He's turned over the tables. This is going to be really their first moment to try to strike back at him. Take us into to what's going on here. Yeah, they sure do want to. And so they're seizing the opportunity uh, thinking that they can trap him. They always think they have the upper hand. We do see that God always has the upper hand. And in fact, this is unfolding to really lead to ultimately Jesus' crucifixion because these these uh, leaders are getting more and more angry. It's an interesting section. It's not one that gets a lot of attention. Uh, it's not in our lectionary at all. Uh, this section is not mentioned in the Lutheran confessions. It would be easy to just jump over these few verses, but they are really, really significant because in this little interchange, we see Jesus reinforce who he is, his authority, the plan of God. Uh, we, uh, we see him holding steady with uh, the revelation of who God is and God's heart in terms of uh, grace prevailing and uh, his mission to head to the cross. So 
it's really, really an important time here for Jesus, a very important interchange. Um, they want to trip him up, as I said, but Jesus instead is able to get his clear message across to these folks as these verses unfold. So Jesus is in the temple. The Mark reads, he's walking in the temple. That's the setting. You know, Jesus has just been here the previous day. What, why might that setting of being back in the temple, what's the significance for the interaction that's going to happen here? There's something really critical about this. And we hear in Matthew and Luke, the parallel verses that Jesus is walking in the temple. He's also teaching in the temple courts. So the temple courts were more of a public place, a place where Gentiles could be, the unclean people. It's the largest area of the temple, and it was frequented by people who were sick and poor. So here we have Jesus in the temple courts walking and teaching the unclean, the people that were frowned upon by church leaders at the time. Uh, these are the unworthy people. This is a great picture of Jesus, friend of sinners, all the way. Uh, there was a fence separating the rest of the temple from these people who were ritually unclean. So you can imagine if the leaders of the church weren't angry enough after the entry into Jerusalem, if they weren't angry enough after the cleansing of the temple, here Jesus is back and he's teaching the people who they felt didn't deserve to be taught. So they were really getting riled up. And and just from to, to look at that from the positive aspect, that Jesus coming back to the temple the day after he's cleansed it, he's he's restoring things to their proper purpose. You know, yesterday he he cast out everything that didn't belong, and now what does he do? He goes there and he teaches. And and even with what he said there yesterday, you know, isn't it written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? He he's emphasizing it. We see that Gentile mission that's already already in place, even if the, the fullness of it is still coming, you know, in, in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and the very end, that that Gentile mission is already happening. So, you know, maybe we could see Monday, the, the negative aspect, getting rid of that which does not belong, and now here a, a restorative aspect that, that Jesus is doing what is proper. He's teaching the Word of God as the Word of God. That's a great point. It's, it's so good, because uh, you're right, exactly. That's ultimate restoration, cleansing and restoration. And the, the fact that he quoted Isaiah and Jeremiah. So we have this Isaiah promise of restoration and God's will and, and the Jeremiah uh, statement uh, indicting and bringing to repentance. And exactly, uh, Jesus is showing and setting things right. And it's so beautiful that this mission to the Gentiles, as is articulated so clearly in the Old Testament, comes through Jesus' very active ministry. Now, the the scene being set, Jesus doing that positive action, the chief priests, and we get all three groups here named, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders all come to Jesus. We saw them yesterday. They were looking for a way to destroy him, but they were afraid at the time. Perhaps the the very public nature, the the more violent nature of what Jesus did on Holy Monday. Now things are a little bit quieter. They're going to take the opportunity now to actually challenge him. They see he's not going away, you know, he, and he's he's here in their territory on their turf. What is it that they challenge Jesus on in verse twenty eight? You know, they asked him by what authority he's doing these things, and of course, these things, of course, can 
refer to the cleansing the temple, overturning money changes? How could he do such an official action? It could refer to the going all the way back to the entry into Jerusalem. It could be his teaching to the uh, the Gentiles, the the unclean in those temple courts. So they're saying by what authority? And that's really a key word. They use it twice. Uh, exousia in the Greek. By what authority are you doing these things? This they're figuring they could catch him in doing something that was not sanctioned by the proper leadership and by the proper authorities. And so they want to indict him and trip him up. And if he's an independent mover, someone who's doing this all by himself, well, then they'll have him exactly where they want him. And I think, you know, as they ask the question, by what authority, and you said they, they use this word twice, by what authority are you doing this? And then who gave you this authority to do them? It, it seems that implied in that is it didn't come from us, Jesus, right? I mean, it, it seems to be that that they have a, a, they think they have a claim on authority themselves. And because Jesus' source of authority clearly isn't them, then something's wrong with that. They it seems like they've got this, and, and I'm, I'm trying to, as, as I was looking at what you, know, what you sent me ahead of time, this, this authority, it, it seems like we get an example here of something that Jesus brought up with his disciples before Holy Week, you know, where the disciples are arguing who's the greatest. And, and James and John are wanting those two seats in Jesus' glory, and Jesus tells you, you don't know what you're asking for. And, and then they're all you know, mad about this, and Jesus talks about that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, their great ones exercise authority over them. And it seems that that same mindset is present among the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, that this matter of authority and our grappling for it is, is just a problem that's common to humanity. It sure is. Uh, it's definitely our fallen nature. And it, you're right, it's all over. Who's really in control here? And, th- and that's something that you and I, all of us, fall into very easily. Uh, it's so difficult to show self-sacrificial love and so easy to veer into control, whether it's your marriage or with your kids or in your church or coworkers or people around you. We tend to want to veer into controlling situations. And, you know, these church leaders had a, a legal and true claim on running the church. They were given that mandate. And they were unfortunately degenerated into legalism and arrogance and surrounding their egos, which gets exposed more and more in this text. But, uh, yeah, we tend to really fall into that. It's interesting, the word for authority, uh, Luther translated it in this section of the scriptures as macht or might. So it's interesting to see uh, power, you know, so they were claiming this power Uh, The history of the word used throughout the scriptures refers to really a godly power, power from above, one that is absolute. It also uh, talks about or or gives us the idea of being free to act upon something based on God's mandate or uh, what he has given us to do. Uh, it's, It's in the legal order. And there's another interesting little use of this word, especially when it's used in Daniel in Aramaic, it talks about, so being under authority, being in the hands of somebody. Now, I think that's really interesting because suddenly the leaders of the church were saying, whose hands are we in? Are we in our own hands? Are we controlling our fate and destiny? We surely can't be in his hands. And it really clarifies this line of belief and unbelief. Mm -hmm. And when we 
reject God, we're saying, I don't want to be in your hands. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to trust you. I don't want your plan. I want my o- own plan. And so the leaders of the church were falling into a trap that all of us fall into at times. They weren't thinking theologically. You know, they, they were thinking according to their own observations, their own desires, their judgments. Uh, Henry Nouwen said, talked about what it meant to think theologically. He said, uh, it's seeing the divine event of God's saving work in the midst of seemingly random events of our time. You know, so seeing God at work, no matter what's happening, the church leaders were blind to that. And Jesus was trying to open their eyes. You know, I mean, it's not like authority is not a bad thing. You know, we we should say that, that authority is not a bad thing. You have authority given, for example, in the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Parents, that that is God's gift of authority and ordering. It it seems that the the Pharisees, the scribes, the the elders, and and all these religious leaders just have the wrong view of authority and, and rather seeing it as a place of service and a place of giving they they've got it the other way around, and I mean I'm reminded of some of the you know the very beginning of of Mark's gospel back in chapter two, some of the first conflict that Jesus has with these religious leaders in his Galilean ministry revolves around his authority to forgive sins, you know I mean and 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 then later his authority to say heal on the Sabbath, which you know to our ears like well why wouldn't why wouldn't you want the Son of Man forgiving sins why wouldn't you want the Lord of creation restoring his creation on the Sabbath. That's precisely what those gifts are for. They've they've got a different view of the authority, it seems, and a, a way of rather than the authority to give the gifts of God, which I mean that would be the authority that's that's placed, say, in the office of the ministry, and and, and the authority to speak the word of God. It's not an authority to to hold it over someone. It's the authority to give, and and these church leaders of Jesus' day have it opposite. Rather than using the authority as a a spot for service which is why God had given them that authority in the first place. They're using it to, as Jesus said in Mark 10, to lord it over others. Yeah, and you hit the nail on the head, Pastor. The authority to give versus the authority to keep or hold to themselves. It reminds me of Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25 when the the master gave his servants authority. Really, he gave them treasure, and those first two servants— put the treasure to work. Uh, they, they did exactly what you described with uh, being authoritative over something. It was to give, to uh, cause it to multiply. The promise was in the treasure. The treasure was going to do something. And here they had the authority to put it to work. That third servant, though, uh, he buried the treasure. He, he was going to protect and preserve it. And it reminds me exactly of the way you're describing these church leaders, where they say, we're going to We're going to bury this. We're going to put it away. We're going to protect it. We're not going to let anyone do anything that may harm this because it's ours to keep and to hold. And Jesus was telling them, you've got authority wrong here. There's a mistake. Right. And and ultimately, too, it's not just, I think, a matter of misunderstanding of authority, but also misunderstanding Jesus, you know, not not recognizing who he is, that as he will say that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's it's not just a you know a fourth commandment issue, but it is, in fact, a first commandment issue. And I think that's, you know, you were going there earlier that that this is a matter of, of fear, love and trust, not in God, but their fear, love, and trust is is in themselves in this case. You know, it, it's something uh, 
when you talked about understanding Jesus, that's so true. And you quoted Matthew chapter 28 when Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. Uh, it's interesting. Jesus captures the meaning of this giving of authority, this movement forward to bless others in Matthew 28. Uh, Luther, this is just really interesting fact. So here in Mark chapter 11, he translates authority as mocked or might. But in Matthew 28, he translates that word authority, and they're both exousia in Greek, but he translated it as gewalt, which is really, it means violence, a violent movement forward, the sending a mission into the world, a movement pressing against. And Luther gets it right here. Uh, it not just We're not just talking about might and power. We're talking about the character and heart of God, his movement into the world, in his incarnation, his walk to the cross, his, his death, his resurrection, his sending of the Spirit, his promise to return. And that is exactly right. The character of God was being missed, and they were trying to hang on to who's going to make the rules. Mm. Right. Yeah. And and so they've they've missed this about Jesus. They've missed who God is because they've missed Jesus. They're they're centered on their own authority and and they're going to try to trap Jesus. And and Jesus is going to spring the trap. And this really does begin a, a series of of moments in Mark and during Holy Week where someone comes at Jesus, takes their best shot, and and you see it's a swing and a miss. The Lord evades and he does so in a masterful way that ends up teaching those if they are if they have the ears to hear it and teaching us still today and we're gonna we're gonna pick that up on the other side of the break you're listening to sharper iron here on kfuo with president mike newman looking at mark chapter 11 we'll be right back please stick around Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, March 9th. We are studying Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. We have President Mike Newman of the Texas District Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod with us. President Newman, prior to the break, we were talking about the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, who have a misunderstanding of what authority is and ultimately a misunderstanding of who Jesus is as the Son of God himself. And so they've laid the trap, they think, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? How does Jesus begin to spring this trap? <laughs> you know, he's the ultimate rabbi, and he uses a rabbinical method of answering a question with a question. And so he says, I'll ask you one question, answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. So he just turns the tables on them in a masterful way. And he's, he's going to ask them, you know, about the baptism of John. So this is really an amazing thing Jesus did here. And we have to realize it's not just, uh, 
trickery or, uh, you know, a logician trying to outsmart or a debate that Jesus is getting into. It's really highlighted in, in the original Greek. You see this. He is going to offer them a word. Mm. Uh, Luther captures this in his translation that Jesus asks them a word. Whenever you see the word logos in the scriptures, you can't just breeze over it. Jesus is going to ask them a question, but what he's doing here is not just having that little sparring match between equals. He's stepping outside the fray of the Pharisees' frenzied control, their misunderstanding, their unbelief that will ultimately condemn them, that will harm their very souls and their eternities. And he, as a savior, as a gracious God, is saying, I am going to bring the word into your life. I'm going to give it to you again. This is such a wonderful demonstration of, again, God's heart and the purpose of Jesus Christ himself. And it's something he does for you and me all the time. We stray, we sin, we fall. We're just, you know, if you, if you look for who you are in this little section, we're not the heroes. We're the villains, too. Uh, we're the ones who are questioning Jesus or saying, why aren't you doing what I'm asking you to do? Or why are you so slow? Or, you know, I prayed a prayer and something really terrible still happened. And are you unfaithful? And, you know, we go to Jesus asking him and questioning even his authority. But Jesus always brings us a living word, a word that doesn't return empty. He brings that seed to our hearts through the proclamation of the word and the scriptures when we're in worship and in Bible study. Uh, through the sacraments. He's always bringing us the means of grace to win us back. So I think it's important for people to know as Jesus poses this question, he is showing God's patience that he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, especially these dear, lost, stiff-necked, chosen people of Israel. For sure. And I think, you know, I mean, just thinking through the narrative that Mark has laid out for us, before he gets to Holy Week, Jesus has been hardest, you might say, on his own disciples. I mean, he, he's got some pretty strong words for these 12 who are with him all the time, even saying, you know, why are your hearts hard? I mean, really, really strong language. And so it, it makes sense that he would be pretty hard with those who were charged with knowing the scriptures, with teaching the scriptures, and who are, are missing it. And I appreciate you bringing out this matter of, you know, the word here that Jesus gives to them that... While, you know, I, and I know I do this, like it's it's fun to kind of see how Jesus evades traps, how he's very masterful in his in his strategy. But it's not just the Lord sort of showing off his ability to spring a trap or to, to outsmart his opponent. This is it's I mean, I'm reminded of what Paul says. I think it's in First Corinthians where he talks about, you know, I didn't I didn't come to you as a as a rhetorician with words of wisdom. I came to you with Christ crucified. And, and that's what Jesus is coming as, as the one who is going to the cross for these very men, not here to outsmart them, but to call them back to the truth, the truth that they should know from the scriptures and the truth that, that he's speaking to them. It's, this is more than just masterful logic on the part of Jesus. This is him calling out to these people he loves to repent. That's right. And it, it really reminds us of an overarching theme throughout the book of Mark, it begins as the gospel of Mark, Jesus' first sermon. He came proclaiming the euangelion, the good news. Mark is unfolding good news to us. And it's a hard gospel. It's hard on the disciples, on the church leaders. It's this, this messianic secret. It's 
tough to figure out sometimes, and that secret surfaces a little later in this text. But the overarching event happening here is good news is being unfolded before us. And Jesus, again, is masterful at dividing and uh, applying law and gospel. He understands what these church leaders need at this very moment. And so he's trying to bring that living word into their lives to win them, especially. Yes, you're right, to win them back. So the question that Jesus poses, he says, I'm going to ask you one question, you answer me, and then I'll answer you. The question he has is about the baptism of John. Why, why is that the question Jesus poses? It is absolutely wise, isn't it? Just amazing. So now we hear, uh, for, for anyone listening, for those church leaders and for us as readers, Jesus suddenly with one question links the plan of God and the unfolding of the plan of salvation through the very evident prophetic presence of John the Baptist to himself. So suddenly, as John, you know, later on we see people saw John as a prophet, you know, a true prophet of God. Jesus is saying, guess what? Uh, Here I am, the next step in the fulfillment under the authority, the ultimate authority, God's unfolding plan of salvation. So he's connecting the dots for the leaders. The same authority John had, I have. Will you wake up? Will you see it? Will you say it? Will you hear the same call, you know, Jesus' sermon, the same sermon that John preached, this calling to repentance? And so we see just this uh, beautiful connection. And uh, sometimes, you know, people say that the Bible doesn't, you know, explain things clearly all the time. But I'll tell you, in this section and so many other sections, the scriptures lay it out to us. It gives it to us. It's clear. That's one of the doctrines of the Holy Scriptures, that it has clarity. And uh, Jesus really clarifies for the Pharisees and church leaders right now, for the teachers of the law, uh, guess what? Here I am on the same line as John the Baptist. So, I mean, when Jesus asks about the baptism of John— it's not just what he did in the Jordan River, but Jesus is saying, what did you think of everything that John did? So all of his preaching for of repentance, all of his, you know, calling out Herod for his adultery, all of that, Jesus said, what did you do with that? And, and what you do with that, that's what you need to do with me as well. That's right. Exactly. And he's challenging them. He knows that's a soft spot. He knows it was so clear you know, God shows us in such bold ways his presence, the truth of who he is. And John the Baptist was a miraculous. Everyone knew he was the miracle baby. Every From the very beginning, everybody knew that this was an absolutely uncommon divine work of God through even the preaching and the fruit borne by his preaching. And right, Jesus is saying, okay, uh, what do you think? And I love how he challenges the Pharisees. He He says at the end of this little phrase, answer me, answer me. You know, really, he's pushing. Think about this. Tell me the truth. Confess what God has been giving to you all along. I think another another thing that strikes me about this bringing up John particularly is that up to this point, the, the religious leaders could, if they wanted, 
kind of avoid John because really Herod took care of that problem for them. You know, you, you've got the political side. Herod didn't like that. And, and Herodias, too, didn't like John calling them out for their adultery. And so, you know, Herod kind of took care of that from the political side without having to deal with any religious leaders so that, you know, these these religious leaders, the chief priests, scribes, elders, if they wanted, they could have kind of, you know, skirted around that. Well, he was put to death and, and we're not going to talk, but Jesus won't let them. You know, he doesn't let the the politics of the situation overshadow the theology of the situation. He really puts it for them. And I mean, I'm, I'm reminded almost of, of what Jesus does even with his own disciples back in Mark chapter eight, where he, he says, you know, what are other people saying? But then they say, what about you? You know, who do you say that I am? And, and I know when I preached it recently here at Grace, I mean, I, I said, this is the question that comes to every person of one way or the other. And I think that's, that's kind of what's happening here with these religious leaders. Jesus is not just challenging them about John, but saying, what do you guys say about me? Yeah, he is. He, he cares about their welfare, their eternal welfare, and cares about who they are as God's people. And he does so by continuing to trace the plan of God. And it's beautiful, really. You look in this section of Mark, this chapter, he mentions Isaiah, he mentions Jeremiah, then he brings John and connects him with the prophetic witness throughout time and links himself as the ultimate prophet. So it's uh, he, he is actually helping them in their context and in their knowledge and understanding of the scriptures to see, look at what God is doing for you. Yes, will you confess? What do you say? And, and even too, I mean, going even farther back in Mark 11, you have Psalm 118 coming up on the lips of the crowds at, on Palm Sunday, which Jesus is going to take up in the very next text in Mark 12, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, and so, I mean, you know, it's it, like, and, and that's going to, that text is going to follow right on the heels of this one. You know, he's, he's putting it to them okay, if you're going to reject me, recognize what that means about me. And again, you know, who is Jesus? That's the question that keeps coming back. And even with this strong language from Jesus, you know, he's, he's not going to give these religious leaders any out. They have to answer this question one way or the other. And even though, you know, at the time the religious leaders were dominated by the Sadducees and they were pushing away anything that was supernatural, very intentionally included in this is the scribes. And those scribes knew the word. They knew every corner of the scriptures. And Jesus is calling them back so that they could actually see and understand what was written here, not just use it as a tool for their own agendas. The the other, and just one more thought on this, because when they came to Jesus and said, you know, who gave you this authority? It, It does seem that they've got in their minds, well, it wasn't us. When Jesus poses the question, what authority did John have? He only gives two options. It's either from heaven or from man. There, there's no middle ground here. You're, either John was with God or he was against God. What are you going to do with that? And then the same is, is true from, for Jesus. You know, There's no sort of third answer, well, the authority came from, from us. And I think you know, that goes back to what we were talking about, the, the issue of authority and, and where does it come from and for what purpose it was given. So Jesus, again, it is masterful, but more importantly, he wants to hear what the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, what they have to say. What do they say about Jesus? And well, take us into their discussion, Pastor Newman. Well, it's something because I think they realized what Jesus' point was here, and it's something important for all of us, too. You're, you're, it's really true the way Jesus distilled this in, into from heaven or from man. 
uh, it's something that all of us need to hear. Either we are with God by his grace or we're against him. We are without him. We are condemned. There is no middle ground. There's no happy medium where we say, well, you know, just somewhere in between, I'm going to be comfortable. And Jesus lets those church leaders know very clearly that suddenly they have two options before them, an option of being called to repentance and faith or an option of rejection of God's plan that Jesus is laying out so clearly, so scripturally in front of them. And so they discussed it with one another. And, you know, this, this word here, dialogizo, I believe, for discussing it, it's a great word, dialogue. It's where we get our word dialogue. Uh, that is something really important, I think, for all of us, that uh, there is what we're doing here on this, this radio program and what all people are called to do in their study of the scriptures together to really dialogue, to talk through, to process the word of God. And so uh, they were dialoguing, but unfortunately they were deaf to the word of God. Their, their dialogue was pushing Jesus out of the pictures. It was dominated by their word, their logos, instead of the living word in front of their very eyes. So, uh, they, you know, it says in the text here, again, uh-oh, they, they understood the dilemma they had. If we say it's from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you believe John? But if we say from man, and then the sentence trails off to some commentary, which is very important, uh, as Mark records, because they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. In other words, uh, the little, they were the little children, the people, who saw that the king had no clothes on, you know, and they, they got it. They saw the reality of God reaching, but the church leaders at the time were blind. Uh, they wouldn't admit it. They couldn't see it. And so they were stuck in this dilemma. Their own power had, and desire for control had painted them into a corner. And so they refused to confess their sin and to acknowledge Jesus as the son of God from heaven. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that moment that Jesus puts in front of them, you know, which, which Peter took up in Mark eight and said, you are the Christ here. It is just, it's very anticlimactic, just nothing. You know, they, they don't even give an answer, which is just, Oh, you know, uh, what, do, what do we do with, I mean, how does, how does this sort of like, I mean, here we are, we're Christians. We know John came from heaven. We know that, that Jesus, I mean, what do we, how do we see this in our lives still today? You know, this, it's very interesting because this really may be the greatest challenge we have even as Christians. Because I, I think of the parable of the persistent widow in Luke when Jesus said, you know, here we have this widow. She's, uh, you know, been treated unjustly. She goes to the judge and pleads her case and not only pleads her case, but bugs him and bothers him and if they had cell phones back, they would be texting him 100 times a day and leaving voicemails and all that stuff. And finally, the judge says, you know, I don't care about God or people, but because this widow keeps bothering me, I'm going to answer her and give her justice. And Jesus said, won't your father in heaven who loves you do so much more and answer your prayers and hear you and care about you? But then Jesus had a punchline in that parable, he said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? 
And so I think in this little exchange here, and we see in the church leaders as they're trying to figure out what next step to take and how not to embarrass themselves, we actually find ourselves in their shoes because there are so many times where we lose our trust in God, in his very clearly expressed will. So for instance, it's easier for us sometimes to believe the statistics about the church rather than trust God with his church. We believe that, oh, young people are flocking away from the church. In in the United States, the church is in decline and statistics show it. And so then we start echoing the narrative of a failing church, a failing word of God, a failing savior. And all the while, Jesus promises us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Jesus promises us that this is his body. He is the head of his church. And that even though there's trouble in this world, he's overcome the world. He's risen from the dead. He's conquered sin. And even though Satan is angry and raging, he has won the victory through his shed blood and through the witness of his saints. So it's, we can easily fall into the same trap of unfaith and unbelief that these church leaders clearly fell into. One of the things that I think really stands out for me with this text and the, the unbelief of the leaders is that as you're listening to their dialogue with one another, which is, as you well pointed out, that this is a dialogue that revolves around their word rather than God's word, you you get the impression that they know what they should say. And they, they certainly know what Jesus wants them to say, but they won't admit it. And you, I mean, you really see the stubbornness of unbelief. I mean, I can't help but think of, of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus and how over and over again, the Lord provided one sign after another that in fact, there is one true God. It is Yahweh, the Lord and Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. And, and I really think you see that playing out here with the religious leaders as, as Holy Week will con- continue, that they know, like they, they've got it in their head, that they know what the right answer is, but they, they won't believe it in their heart. And just to, I mean, just to use that and, and see the, the great danger of unbelief, that, that when we start to set ourselves against the things of God and side with the things of man, we shouldn't, I mean, that's a dangerous path to start down. Yeah, you know, in our self-justification, we're really good at it. Very good. at, And, you know, just when we see this, it's a cautionary tale, isn't it? It's a warning for each of us. Uh, as we heard Paul warn the people in 1 Corinthians 10, be careful if you think you're standing, lest you fall. It is a dangerous thing to fall into this resistant stubbornness against God. And instead of living a life of repentance, as Luther urges us to uh, it is so important regularly to fall before God in confession of our sin. That's one of the reasons why in our worship services, this regular confession of sin, it's to inst- it's not just to go through a ritual, it's to instill, instill this habit of confessing our sin before God, understanding who we are before him, that we are in need of him, we're not in control. So yeah, I, I'll tell you, this, this, this cautionary episode is, is most important too because we're we're here in this final week as Jesus is going to be crucified and we're all going to be asked the question that you just mentioned who do you say he is now as the text concludes you know they they come back to Jesus with something audible you know we we don't know and then Jesus says then I'm not going to tell you what authority I have either which in in some 
in some respects is maybe a, a harder word than Jesus has said this whole text because oh, I remember we were studying the book of Amos. It's been a while on Sharper Iron, but there Amos talks about a famine of God's word and, and how when God doesn't talk, <laughs> that's that's scarier than when God does. And and this this matter of I'm not going to answer you. Oh, man, I, that's almost a, a harsher word of law, I think, than what he said to them earlier. Yeah, it reminds me of Pharaoh, like you said. It's, I'll confirm the hardness of your heart. Yeah. Guess what? The whole theme of the Gospel of Mark is this good news from the beginning to the very end of proclaiming it to all, all creation. But guess what? I'm not going to tell you the good news. You know, y- you can't bear hearing it right now. And that is frightening. When they say, we don't know, oh, and Jesus says, okay, I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, very, very scary thing. If Again, a preview, what if God were to withdraw his word, to withdraw his hand? What if instead of Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We were truly placed in the position of being forsaken by God. And it's another way that God shakes us to reality. And uh, we pray opens our eyes to see who he is as our savior. Well, why, I mean, why, why doesn't Jesus answer? Why is, is it just evading the trap? Is there more there? Why doesn't he answer? You know, it's interesting. Uh, He, I think one thing he's doing here is another masterful work as savior. He is not going to uh, reveal the mystery. He's not going to fall into the gameplay of the leaders of the church. Uh, He's not going to engage in what will be a fruitless argument. And so he says, I'm not going to tell you this thing. Um, you know, I'm going to show you. And he proceeds, he's going to proceed onto, uh, you know, into this Holy Week and proceed to the cross. And he said, okay, I'm not going to tell you, but I will continue to teach. And that's what happens, you know, in the next chapter. The teaching of Jesus is unleashed. And he gets even more intense when it comes to the indictment of the church leaders but also showing his real purpose as he walks to the cross. Yeah, it's, it, in, it ends up not being a complete silence of, of Jesus at this moment, but it is going to be a maybe a, a redirection to help them hear the word of God in a different way, not to play their game, but but simply to let the truth stand. You know, let he's he is the truth. He's going to speak the truth on his own terms. He's not going to play their game of, of challenging authority. Now, President Newman, we have about four minutes here in our conversation, and and this is a, this is a hard text. I mean, we, we said that from the get-go. It's a hard text. There is a lot of, to use that distinction, a lot of law here. How do we see the gospel come through in a text like this? You know, and that's it's a great question because, again, this is the theme of the gospel. Mark, this is the purpose for the scriptures. One thing this episode does is highlight the theology of the cross, We live in mystery. Uh, We live in the mystery of suffering and sin and brokenness. And Jesus doesn't come to us and explain everything to us or tell us every mystery. But instead, he joins us in our suffering, in our pain, and walks us through the cross, through suffering, uh, through the grave. So really, this text, I think, tells all of us that uh, God's grace is sufficient for us, right? His grace needs to be sufficient, uh, regardless of the thorns we have in our flesh or our own blindness. So, and again, the events that unfold later show us that this underscores the theology of the cross, because Jesus heads in that direction. The other thing is, 
we really see that Jesus diffuses evil and challenge. He doesn't become entangled or dis- in or distracted by our pettiness or controlling curiosity. He set his face toward Jerusalem. He's not going to be distracted from his mission to seek and save the lost, each one of us. And it's really a great teaching for all of us about navigating life in this world, that we're called not to be entangled in arguments, in uh, pulled into the appetites of others. But really, there's a higher calling as we lift high the cross, as we remember the gospel. Uh, we live in a very adversarial culture. This culture was the same way. They wanted to ma- manipulate Jesus. But Jesus stays true to the mission of loving you and me, loving this world, and giving his life to save us, not to justify himself, not to make himself look good, not to outsmart Pharisee or, you know, leaders of the, the church, but to save the people of God. And, uh, you know, as he prayed and wept about, even save his own chosen people. Yeah, I'm reminded of the the gradual for the season of Lent, which begins, Oh, come, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, even as he fixed his eyes on the cross, on his mission to save sinners, to save you and me. Pastor Mike Newman is the president of the Texas District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. President Newman, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Pastor Apple. It's a joy. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 11, any of the events of Holy Week, or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.